Hello, everybody. It's me, Jeff, and welcome to the Two Half Squads, the one and only podcast dedicated 100% to the greatest game in the world, and that is... Advanced Squad Leader. I am joined in the broadcast foxhole. I am not joined in the broadcast foxhole. Just like over the space-time continuum, I am joined by the miracle of technology by Mr. Rich Spilkey, who is... I, I don't... He needs no introduction. Rich, you don't need an introduction. Is that good or bad? I'm not sure. It depends upon the situation, but I'll take it for what it's worth at this point. I'm joining you electronically in the foxhole, and yeah. I recognize the background behind you because I have joined you there in the past. Yes, it's been a while, but but it has been done, and hopefully it will happen again in the not-too-distant future. I'm going to switch off. I'm wearing a helmet, by the way, because Rich and I are going to get into some deep, deep subjects tonight, and I didn't want to bump my head. I actually was looking for a propeller hat. Because, as usual, when Rich joins us, um, we talk about a lot of technical squad leader stuff, and I need my propeller hat, but I couldn't find it. Well, so I think you'll be able to handle it without that, Jeff, although it might be a little harder for you. Well, we'll, we'll see. I want to comment while you're switching headgear there that I see in the upper right-hand corner above you six uh -huh. of my favorite books that I must comment on, the six volumes that Winston Churchill wrote. Uh, post-World War II, but about World War II, the whole thing of, you know, how it started and how it ended. You see those six volumes up there? And I have read all six of those books. I have those same books uh, in my house. And I'm wearing a Winston Churchill's shirt. You can kind of sort of see it. It says, never surrender. You can see the never part. Yeah, stand up. The video. Let me stand up and show it. I got to off. Never, there's Winston, surrender. Yeah, nice. But those books are terrific. If you guys have not read those books, this is not a Spine and Sprocket podcast, so I'm sorry to digress. But those are some of the greatest books uh, I've ever read. They're absolutely terrific. And they really show what, uh, you know, Winston Churchill obviously himself was thinking and what the government was thinking. And obviously it's all his perspective. He's the author. But it really is pretty enthralling to me. I, I love every minute of those books. It's on, they're on my list, but I have a very large list. Now, hopefully I'll get to them someday because I did start one of them and I, I really liked his writing and I like that they're not so dense. He's, he's got a very kind of a conversational way of writing, I think, that's, uh, that's actually pretty easy to read. Well, I find it entertaining. You know, I used to think way back when I was a teenager, the, uh, I think the title of the second book is called Their Finest Hour. Yeah. And I used to think, is the, I'm not sure if you have them in the right order, but I think the second volume is their finest hour. Is that correct? Uh, yes. The Gathering Storm is first. Right. As I recall. But I used to think, you know, when I was like 15 years old, give or take, that that was about, you know, their finest hour was the Germans' finest hour. It was their finest hour, their high, you know, the, the, the high point of the war for the Germans when they had taken yeah. over most or almost all of Europe. They were, uh, you know, had, had known nothing but victory. And so I thought it meant, well, there, it was their finest hour. And, and if you read the book, you will soon realize, or maybe you won't realize until you get to near the end, but it's really about the British Empire's finest hour when they were at the peak of losing and yeah. alone that they hung together and didn't give up. And that, when that, when my eyes opened and, and I finally realized that, you know, after thinking 20 years wrongly, it was quite moving to me to yeah. realize what it really meant. Yeah. So I hope we didn't ruin that for you, Jeff. I can imagine. No, you didn't. I knew that that was the case. Um, but uh, I think, likewise, long ago, when I first heard the term and, and heard, you know, the little bits of Churchill saying it. Because it'd be you'd hear it on snippets and here and there. Um, yeah, it's interesting because with uh, the stuff that's going on in the world these days, you know, if you watch the news at all, very anxiety. And uh, you always wonder about the amount of anxiety that the public had to endure in Britain in those early days of the war. Well, really, all through the war. They were so close, so close to getting invaded. 
And when you think how close the close proximity of the, the coast of France from the coast of England, I mean, it must have been terrifying. I, I, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they put up with it. Obviously, Winston Churchill helped. Well, yeah, the, the Germans probably didn't realize, realize how close they were, uh, completely uh, wiping out the Air Force of Great Britain. And, you know, there's just tons of harrowing stories about that. The, their Finest Hour talks about that, but there's a lot of books, there's a lot of movies on that subject. There's, uh, you know, the fact that his own government wanted to negotiate terms. There's, you know, so many, there were so many close calls. Churchill didn't have the, you know, influence and power that he, you know, ended up having a few years later after helping to turn things around and he wasn't quite as beloved by the people at that point. So he yeah. was still shoring up his own power base is what I'm trying to say. And so, you know, we look back now and say, well, of course, Churchill did this. And of course, he was able to sway people, but it, it wasn't so easy. Yeah, that's that's something we miss out on uh, when you when you read general history is you don't get that sense of what what was really going on and how hard it really was. You know, bringing it back forward, uh, just the other day, my son, my 24-year-old son, my younger son, he uh, had his friends over and they were uh, just playing bags in the backyard. And sometimes they asked me to join them if they're short, a player. You know, it's just a fun, fun thing to do. And he, uh, I asked one of his friends, just some, we got in the subject of, I don't know, history or something. I think one of the, one of the guys is going to be a, history teacher at a grade school is his new job. But this, so I, I was asking the other friend, not the friend who's going to be the history teacher, you know, just some basic stuff about World War One and World War Two. And I was really just really became concerned because this friend, 24 year old friend, you know, went to a good high school here in the town I live in, Downers Grove, the same high school my sons went to. He's, he's been college educated. He's going for his master's degree now. And uh, he went to a very good, prestigious university, uh, University of Wisconsin. Now he's going to uh, University of Iowa for his master's. Anyway, I was concerned because he did not know anything. Oh, I know what it was. it was. The date was June 6th. It was D-Day. We were playing We were playing bags on that day. I think that was a yeah. Saturday, wasn't it? That was a Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, so they were over. We were playing bags. That's why. So I asked him, you know, what was the significance of the, the date? He didn't know. He didn't know that it was D-Day. When we told him it was, he didn't know what D-Day meant. He didn't know what it was about. I mean, he did know, like, the very, very, very basics. Well, isn't that when we stormed the beaches of Normandy? But he didn't know, or of France. But he didn't know, really, anything else. So, like, he didn't know, like, why that was important. He didn't know why that was a big deal. He didn't know that lots of Americans died. He didn't know that General Eisenhower was in command of that effort. He didn't know it was a joint operation with allies. And it just blew my mind. And I don't expect them to know all the stuff that we know as students of history that we are and expect them to know all that. I don't know, but I just thought he would know more as an educated young man. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that as well. And, you know, for myself, I, I never really considered myself a student of history. But, you know, growing up, we watched TV, we watched movies. I had some history, of course, in school. You read things here and there. You see magazine articles, you read the paper, you listen to people talking, you pick up stuff. Just in listening and being exposed to a lot of different media and, and stuff, you just pick up stuff. And I always just picked up stuff. So I, I know stuff. And it used to drive my ex-wife crazy. She used to say, how do you know all this stuff? I said, well, it's just, just living, just living, just existing. How did you know that that word came from that word. Mm -hmm. It's just something I picked up. But I think more and more as people are being distracted, and I hate to go on harping about this kind of thing, they're distracted by video games and social media and, and all these other things so that they're not being exposed to all these different sources of real history. A lot of it's casual history, grandparents and just conversations people are having. They're, they're not exposed to it, so they don't they don't know anything. And it's not surprising. They don't know stuff about stuff they've never been exposed to. And it's just they've never been exposed to it. And their parents don't even expose it to them because they've all already, I don't know how old, how old do you think this kid's parents were? 
are? Well, they're probably about my age. They're mid-50s. And so maybe they never, maybe there were no grandparents around to listen to stories from. Or, you know, it's hard to know. But I do notice it. I do notice a severe well, lack of general I'm knowledge. Because, uh, I'm concerned because, you know, these young folks, and, and these are young people that are college educated, you know, went to a very good high school here in the town we live in. I mean, I know it is because I moved here on purpose because it was a good school district so that my sons could attend the schools here. So I did the research before I moved here 15 years ago. And so I, I guess I believe, I hope I'm not being fooled, but I believe they really did go to a good high school. It's the same one that you went to, Jeff. Yes, so, it is. So, because you used to live in this town. So uh, you know it's a good school. And if they don't know that stuff, that means that other students that perhaps weren't exposed to as good of an education as these guys were are less likely to know it. Yeah. And again, it's not that you got to know the statistics of how many Americans died and how many beaches there were and how many landing craft the Americans put out there. You know, that's not what I mean. I just mean that people sacrificed their lives for a cause, lots of them, and they were brave and they obeyed orders that may not have made any sense to them. And the sacrifices that people made during that time, both economically and, you know, putting their life on the line, both and giving up all of their tomorrows so that, you know, we can enjoy our todays. That's what I mean. That's yeah. the important part. That's the memory and that needs to be honored. And that's what we have, Memorial Day and things like that. But if you don't know the politics that were going on or the issues that were being confronted or the obstacles that needed to be overcome, and then things happen today in our world that are challenging or difficult or complicated, if you don't have a perspective on that stuff, I think that you can make bad decisions or you can make mistakes. That's what I'm worried about because this is the generation that's going to be taking over soon. Yeah. And if they are that, you know, unfamiliar with what's gone before them, you know, I'm sorry, I'm concerned. I, I think there could be some, some bad decisions made. Yeah, absolutely true. And I've got an answer for you that will, I think, set your mind at ease. Uh, and really give you a lot of hope for the future. What's that, Jeff? <laughs> I'll I, I will, I'm not going to tell you. I'm, I'll tell you in the next show. <laughs> okay. All right. So, well, we digress. Uh, yes, we digress, but it's a good digression. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. You were on uh, last time, and we enjoyed having you and enjoyed having doing the video, which was new for us. And now you're back because we wanted to talk to you about, and oh, and by the way, in case anybody noticed, Dave's not here tonight. Dave, you're not here, are you? No, Dave? Dave's not. Dave? Dave? Dave had other plans come up. Did that happen? Can other plans come up? Anyway, he got uh, sidetracked and is doing something else. So uh, we thought we'd press on without him and see how we do. How does all this stuff work? I'm glad you know, because I don't. I'm, <laughs> but I'm glad you're here, Rich, because I don't. I would not be able to talk about onslaught to Orsha, and that is our topic for tonight. Yeah, and I think you guys did uh, just barely scratch the surface last time I listened to your show, and you talked about the cover art yeah. of onslaught to Orsha two, which came out fairly recently, about maybe a month or so ago. Right. And there's a lot. Apparently, there's a lot more to it than just the cover art. Apparently. There's a box full of stuff. So Onslaught to Orsha 2, this is a project that is it's a product from Bounding Fire. Thank you, Bounding Fire Productions, for sponsoring the two half squads. We appreciate that. Um, and this, tell, tell me about your involvement with this project, Rich. Yeah, well, that's quite a story in itself to uh, tee things up. So first of all, you might want to, or at least I'll just uh, suggest to your listeners that at this point, we're getting close to the point where you might want to watch because we're going to be showing some things similar to what we did last time. You don't have to. You can just listen to the audio if you want. But if you are interested in more of the detail and seeing the things we're going to be showing, you know, this is going to be another one of those podcasts where you can look and see. And uh, it'll be interesting to the feedback that you get, Jeff, on the, uh, you know, the people who give feedback on the podcast if they like that new way of both seeing and 
listening or, or not. I'm sure it'll be a mix mixed signals probably depending upon their point of view. But right. anyway, but right now we're still just going to be talking. So so it's an interesting thing because I think you guys know, and, and Jeff and Dave have mentioned many times on their show here on the podcast, that you know the kind of player that I am, I'm really into the, you know, I want to say I'm into the rules. I'm really not into the rules. I'm really into making the rules playable, making the rules understandable, making the play experience for the player, including me, more enjoyable by understanding the rules, not being confused by them and not being, you know, wondering, well, gee, can I do that? Or can't I do that? Or should I do that? Or shouldn't I do that? Or what are the repercussions if I don't, or if I do to me, that's not fun. Uh, Wondering if like your opponent knows something you don't know, and then you do something and he zaps you and says, gotcha, you you can't do that. And I, I remember early on playing ASL with a guy and we were determined to not make any mistakes. And so first roll of the die, it's like, can I do this? I don't know. We got out the book. We looked around, cross-reference, charts, cross-reference with more rules. An hour later, yes, you can do that. Okay, and that, so then that would move. Then he would have another move and be like, can we do that? And off again, we'd go to the rule book, which was, it was actually kind of fun for a little while. Um, but it's not conducive to playing the game. Exactly. So I've tried to make tables and charts all along for years, like now yeah. 20 years now coming up on, I suppose, where I've tried to condense some of the more complicated rules or rules that like or things that happen frequently or happen often. And so, you know, for those who have downloaded the rules tables that you make available on the website, and I think the Texas group also makes them available you know, they're not many, like, they're, they're sort of in a weird order. They're not really organized like chapter A and chapter B and chapter C, like maybe you might hope. They're really just sort of like how I came across them in my, in my gaming yeah. experience. You know, I like, oh, this thing happened. I should make a rules table for that. Right. So, so there really is no, if you're looking for some kind of sequence or order or uh, there isn't. But... I, I do think I've captured a lot of great topics there of, you know, how to do this or how to do that. And I hope that it complements, you know, the tables of charts that MMP and others have already made. But in the, in the context of Onslaught to Orsha, what happened is, is pretty typical of my experience, but in this case, it took a, a different turn. So I played Onslaught to Orsha 1, I don't know, a couple, three years ago. And I was getting into it and playing it with a couple of different guys and playing some of the scenarios. And and in preparation, though, for the campaign game that I was preparing to play with a friend, I started to make a whole bunch of charts for my own use on how to do some of the special rules that Onslaught Orsha has. They have special aircraft rules that are different than the standard aircraft rules. And, and you know, the aircraft rules, just the standard ones are already a little tricky and not everybody understands how to use them as they stand, but then, then Onslaught Orsha added even more variety and flavor to the aircraft rules. Yeah. Which, you know, if you already didn't understand, you know, the basics, then it'd be even more difficult to understand the nuances of the new stuff. And there were different kinds of bombardments and they had they have this new feature called the, the PT or the, the, the mine roller tank that the Russians had and their special rules for that that are uh, unique to Onslaught Orsha. And there's some special terrain things. So anyway, I made my own little rules, tables, and charts just to facilitate my own play, just like I often do. And time goes by and time goes by. And over time, I've gotten to be friends with a couple of the guys down in Texas. I've gone to their tournament a couple of times. I participated in a couple of their, uh, of their, you know, rules, discussions, and things like that. And I showed them you know, these charts that I had made for Onslaught or Show 1. And lo and behold, they said, well, you don't realize this, but you're going to realize it. We're making Onslaught or Show 2 right now. And, and I guess one of the guys really liked my Onslaught or Show 1 charts. And he's like, wow, we should incorporate these or, you know, modify to be upgraded for Onslaught or Show 2. But conceptually, he really liked the idea of including those in the module. So I was so excited because for years, I've been making these charts for Tarawa and Red Barricades 
and onslaught to Orsha, and I can't even remember all the different ones I've made and even the basic rules. You know, I've got like 30 some charts on the basic rules and never, but I always do it after the fact. You know, like I do it a year after or two years sure. after or 10 years after yeah. the, the module has already been released. It's way too late right, to have an impact on the game itself. You know, it's long after the fact. So this was the first time that the guys that were designing the scenarios and designing the rules and the maps brought me into the circle on the front end, <coughs> excuse me, on the front end to, you know, try to try my hand at making some charts and tables to supplement and complement the game as it comes out. And I hope that folks really like the charts and tables because they're, they're, they're unique. They're, there's none like these that I've, I've seen in my experience with squad leader and ASL. Again, the purpose is still the purpose, making the players playing time, you know, that much more enjoyable and pleasant because they can easily glance at this chart and follow along, I hope, and deploy the rules as they're written. Right. So they got you, uh, so they were still in the early stages of development at that time? Well, and... I'd say they were past the early stage. Okay. Uh, they, were, they were probably... I don't know. I, I, they may not agree with this. I would say they probably were two thirds or three quarters already done by oh, the okay. time I showed up on the scene. But that was actually okay because, again, I'm not a scenario designer. I'm not really a guy to write the rules. I'm really not a map guy. You know, so all of that hard work that those guys did uh, is great, and that's not my strong suit. But my strong suit was I read the rules as they had. I did make some recommendations on how to rewrite the rules or add more examples. I did, you know, make these charts to illustrate the rules more vividly. And so the timing I came in was, was an appropriate point in the design of the whole module to come in. It was not too late. Okay. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you did. And so they incorporated a bunch of those charts. So, so how do you want to do this? Do you want to jump in and start showing us some of the charts? Do you want to talk about the... Uh, should we do a little like a what's in the box to kind of show what what all comes with it and then get in? Yeah, that's a really good question. Why don't we do a what's in the box? And I'll let you be the leader of that if you'd like to, or I can okay. you know, be partner with it with it on you. And then, then I will drill into a few details after that. And we will have to be a partner because I don't have the whole box. I just have a few things. Dave dropped off uh, a few things for me to, to have because originally Dave and was going to join us with this. So we're going to have to do a truncated what's in the box, but you've got everything that's in the box. So whatever I'm missing, you can fill in with. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So let me share your screen or your share, or share wherever you want to share first, and I can okay. go in a second. <clears throat> well, first of all, we're just going to uh, talk about what comes in the box. So besides the box itself, which we talked about last time with the, with the great artwork, uh, comes with three... Count them three large. These are the usual campaign size or historical module size maps. I don't know if you can see that. So three this size, right? I just have two. I got chipped. Yeah, I believe there are three. They're not all exactly the same size, but they're meant to all go together is my understanding. Ah, okay. All right. Again, I'm not an expert on this, but I will say they're beautiful. They're very, the artwork is just, you know, terrific. Yeah, very high quality uh, paper. It's the larger size hexes, which I really like. Yeah. It's kind of thick cardboardish uh, material, so it's pretty durable, it seems. I don't, anyway, I like it a lot. Yeah, and in fact, let's see. I've, so I've got two of them. Just see. I also like the way, like, open up the map that you're showing there, Jeff. You'll see, like, the little red dots that have numbers by them. Like, yeah. Those are like identifying the victory point locations that right. are important in the campaign game or in some of the scenarios. So I just like that. I like the way they make it easy on the user or on the player to quickly identify, you know, like, you know, sometimes when you read an SSR, it'll say, you know, hex U10 is worth 10 points and hex X11 is worth 10 points or whatever. This just very quickly lets you find those things with the red easily identifiable numbers. I just think that's cool. Brilliant. That, that right there makes the whole thing worth it. 
me just look at this next map and you could see this nice, I love the railroad track going through the center of the map. So this one is, yeah, continuation. Trying to see. So which map do you have that I don't have? Oh, I'm not sure, Jeff. But there are three of them. I got three paper or cardboard maps. It says on the back, you know what it says on the back where it tells That's us what the uh, things are included? It says there's two 22 inch by 27 inch maps, HASL, and one 28 by 27 map. Okay. So there's three of these HASL maps. Two of them are the same size, and one is a little bit bigger. Okay. Well, in any event, and the terrain in this is all pretty similar across the map. So there's there's lots of, first of all, you'll notice lots of shell holes. Probably more than that, you'll notice the uh, train that goes through, the train track that goes through the entire map. Both yeah, maps. that train track is super important, too, if you ever end up playing some of the bigger scenarios or campaign game. Because that is a, as I recall, it's a half-level obstacle. It's a, it's not a ground-level uh train it's a what do you call the one that's a half level high it's a embanked train i think they call it EM. yeah right and it's a half level so it's kind of like almost like a wall going across so like units on one side of the train track really can't see units on the other side you know unless they're like right adjacent to the train track so it kind of yeah. breaks up the map in an interesting way and i'm kind of remembering this now did you play uh orsha scenario with uh dennis donovan Yes, he and I played this, the giant scenario. Okay. It's called, it's called Blood, One Bloody Morning. It's one of the big giant scenarios that uses virtually the whole map. And he and I played it twice. We, we switched sides and we played it once at Aslock and then another time in Texas, switching sides. And we met each other because he lives in California. You know, I live here in Illinois. So we, got, we only could meet when we uh, you know, got together in these tournaments. And yeah, we played it twice. And when you mentioned the railroad, I just got a laugh. I know we talked about this on your program, but there was one occasion when he was the German and he had this very powerful 88 you know, millimeter gun that's supposed to take out a lot of Russian tanks. I'm remembering this. And he yeah. tried recovering it with two crews. And I don't remember all the data now. I think we did talk about it on your podcast. I'm sure we did. We did. You but, did but he yeah. had six failures in a row of recovering the gun. Because <laughs> I, think, I think I broke the crew and it routed. And then it rallied back, but it was not in the hex. I'm just trying to remember now. Dennis, I'm sure, remembers maybe even more vividly than me. And then he had another crew come to take its place because it was very important for him to get this gun going. Now, some of the failed attempts were under the CX modifier. So you got to add one on a recovery roll when you're CX, which means a five or a six, you won't recover it. But four, as I recall, four of the six recovery attempts all he needed was a five or less, you know, with one with one die. Yeah. And he failed six in a row. <laughs> and just unbelievable. And we and, and what to add insult to injury, we were playing with the rule. I think we talked about this on that show. I forget which episode that was. It was, you know, a couple couple years ago. We were playing with the rule that we 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 call it passing the cup. We have this little red Yahtzee cup, that's a little plastic cup that's like the size of your fist. And if you roll a bad roll, you're allowed to pass the cup to the other guy and then re-roll that bad roll. Right, right. But the, but the rule that we have for that is it has to be a two-dice sum that you're re-rolling, you know, like on the IFT or something like that, or a morale check or something. You can't do it for single-die things. Okay. It's made for two-dice sums. It's made for two-dice, okay. So it's usually on the IFT if you roll a 12 when you break a gun or something, yeah. or if you get a morale check 12 when you kill a 10 negative two liter, you would re-roll that if you had the cup. But then you got to pass the cup to the other guy, and then he's got the cup, and then he has that opportunity to re-roll something. But anyway, yeah. or, just, or just hang on to the cup. Or just hold on to it and yeah. not let your opponent have it. Yeah. But anyway, so we were playing with that rule. But it just, again, but because he was doing single die rolls, he had the cup, but he couldn't use it for that purpose. So frankly, I felt sorry for poor Dennis. That was really just an unbelievable, and I think we calculated the odds on your program and it was, I don't remember, but you have to listen to that episode, but it was thousands and thousands to one that that could happen. I remember anyway, so that. And, and I remember I see how, the railroad track, I think about that. How disappointing that is uh, when you 
you spend all that time preparing and then you meet somebody that you're not going to see again for another year and then that happens yes it was sad but but i've also shared with you some of my gut-wrenching heartbreaking stories that have happened to me against oh, yeah. uh, other opponents that have been oh, yeah. just so sad i could cry yeah so so it goes both ways yeah uh, also comes with this, we get uh, two of the standard geomorphic boards. And these don't enter into the campaign game, I wouldn't think, do they? Or these are just for playing? No, they're, they're, the yeah, some of the scenarios use yeah. regular boards and some of the scenarios use the HASL boards. It depends. Okay. There's, there's quite a big pack of scenarios. And these are, these are those uh, double wide boards that uh, BFP makes, the DW that stands for double wide. So there's uh, these are actually four, there's four of them. There's four double wides, 8A, 8B, and 9A and 9B, I believe, in this module. And they're they're beautiful. They're just really pretty. I don't know. I just like the way BFP does their work. It's just really high, high quality. Yeah. And that is all I have other than the charts. So what well, else I'll is talk about what I have then. Um, yeah. I'll just show one as an example here. I'll just show it up on the screen like this. There's 32 scenarios. Wow. I'm not going to go all through all 32. You'll be glad to yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some are big, some are small, some are on the standard maps, some are on the uh, historical maps. You know, that's a nice mix. Some are, uh, I will talk about, you know, that. OTO8, Another Bloody Morning, that's the big one that I played with Dennis Donovan that I recommend very highly. It's a lot of fun, but it does take a lot of time, and you got to you know prepare for that one. So I will highlight that one as a fun one, but, but a big one. There's also a bunch of counters. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll be very brief, but um, you know, there's some special mine roller counters that you need for the, you know, the mine roller rules, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Yeah, cool. Uh, there's, you know, a whole bunch of Russian mine roller tanks that you'll need, you know, for the that special uh, situation. One counter I really like, I'm going to show it. I don't know. Other people might not be that excited about this, but I am. Is the burning wreck counter. Do you see the burning wreck? See the red ones? There's the oh, yes. Wreck. Oh, yes. And I love those counters. I'm going to cut those out and just use them in my normal counter mix because I get so tired of having to find a flame to put on a wreck and then it's two, two counters high when it could just be one if you had one of these. Plus sometimes when you get a wreck, it's worth victory points. And if you take the vehicle counter off the board to you know, put it in the victory point pile to keep track, then obviously you know, you've taken it off the board where it still would probably have an effect. So if you have a burning wreck and it's a burning wreck, you can actually put this burning wreck counter there and you can put uh -huh. the counter itself in that victory point pile if, if, if necessary. Yeah. So I like that. I'm going to use those. So with that, maybe I'll dive a little bit into the rules and the rules tables that I tried to make or charts for the module and just give people a taste and a flavor if they if they haven't bought the module yet themselves. Uh, before you do that, let me just ask you about another bloody morning because this is offered, as you said, in this scenario pack, obviously. Is it going to play any different, you think, this with Onslaught to Orsha 2 than it did in 1? Like, why did they make this? Why did they remake this? Did they you know, fix I, things sorry, that were I, broken? I can't, I can't answer that question. Okay, uh, that's okay. Again, I did not design the scenarios. I don't know if Another Bloody Morning is exactly the same as it was in Onslaught to Orsha 1. I apologize. I don't know. Okay. Uh, it might be exactly the same. They might have altered it. I know that the rules of Onslaught to Orsha 2 are not that much different than the rules of Onslaught to Orsha 1. Okay. Yeah. Not many, not many changes. The, the main thing, they just added a whole bunch more aircraft, both to the German side and to the Russian side, and gave a whole lot more capabilities to the different kinds of aircraft, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And that's the main thing that they added. But that wouldn't affect that particular scenario because that particular scenario, you know, has the a certain amount of Russian and German aircraft already. Yeah. That I don't think has changed from, you know, the first version. So, okay. But I really don't know. I really don't know if they modified the scenario or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to ask the, those guys next time I talk to them. So, yes. Okay. So on we go. All right. So first, I guess I will show 
special aircraft rules just in general. I'm not going to go through all these pages, but I'll show you a few. So again, the vast majority of these rules were written by the other BFP folks, not, not, not me. But I did help with, uh, you know, kind of rewording some things. I did help with, you know, showing uh, and illustrating a number of examples or adding to the examples or uh, maybe rewording some of the examples to make them more clear and more vivid. And, and that's one thing I really love about the BFP products. They just really show a lot of examples. So you see here, there's example of play one and they show all the different Russian aircraft and all the different features they have. And uh, when the unit becomes available and, you know, it's rate of fire and doesn't have rockets or bombs and this, that, and the other. Wow. And that is cool. But you can see why these were very conducive to making a nice chart and table to summarize and gather this, these facts and figures together, which, you'll, yeah. which I'll show you in a second. Uh, so, again, there's, uh, you know, all these rules with rockets and special ammunition and cannons and cluster bombs. Cluster bombs? What's a cluster bomb? Well, I think it's both against infantry and tanks. And, again, that's when it gets confusing. So when you think about it, there's all these different options. Yeah. There is, you know, when the aircraft go against infantry, there's when the aircraft go against AFEs, there's the point attack and the strafing run, you know, options that you have that are the standard rules. But when you do all that math of this times this times this, you know, there's like so many combinations that your head starts to spin and you don't know what to do. Yeah. So, so again, that's why I... I put these charts together, which we'll show in a minute, to, to try to summarize this stuff. But these examples are great. Like one thing I did emphasize, like you can see here in this uh, Sturmovic example, play one, making a, a rocket point attack. You know, again, I did maybe 10% of this work. The other guys did, did the vast majority. But I did like show in the example in bold, like, you know, yes, the base is seven, but here's why the base is seven. It's this plus this minus that. Right. I really tried to show people, I didn't just tell you it's seven. You know, I, I tried to, you know, illustrate, you know, that there's a reason why it's seven, because you have these things. I, I can't, I was going to say, I can't tell you how many times I, I'll look at an example, like in the rule book, um, and I'll see what the, their determination, you know, if the if this happens, then it's that many pluses or minuses, but they, they don't do what you did. They don't break it out and show you why. And a lot of times I'll think, I, I can't figure out how they came to that number. <laughs> so right. this is yes. really instructive. It's very yeah, so, so again, I, I don't want to take too much credit here myself, but I, I was involved in helping them to put these examples together. Yeah. And even more so, I, I really try to emphasize the, you know, here's where the numbers come from in this example. And then you notice this last sentence here. Should you get this hit, you know, should you roll this seven in this case, or less than any hit you have, how will you resolve it? Well, it's an area attack, so you're going to re resolve it using the indirect fire principles, like as if it were like OBA or a mortar or something like that, because it was an area, you know, type attack. Right, right. And then you get the minus one diro modifier for aerial advantage. So I just try to make it super obvious, like here's how you hit, here's how you resolve it, and, and this is just in the rules themselves. We haven't gotten to the tables yet. But I hope that people really enjoy looking at these examples, and they should answer just about any question you have. Here's an example, play two, with a rocket strafing run. And again, you can see in bold over here on the left, the examples and the illustration of the modifiers. Because oftentimes it's hard to say, well, gee, should I do a vehicle target type? Or should I do a, a point attack? Or a, right. Or a uh, strafing run, or you know, whatever. Your head spins. You don't know which one to do. Is this one yeah. better against infantry, or is this one better against tanks? I don't know. Should I do area target type? And these examples show you well. There's advantages and disadvantages to doing everything, but at least make allows you to make an informed decision. You know, here's I, a, go ahead. I did a I did a quick read through on just a, a few of these examples, and I found them so useful. I thought, you know, I I would almost for myself, benefit from reading the examples first and then going back and reading the rules. Because the rules will make more sense because I've got some context. I've already yeah, seen absolutely. some context for absolutely. how they apply. Good point, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah. I'm glad you said because that's exactly how I was hoping people would think about it is the yeah. compliment to the rules. You know, here in this example, <coughs> excuse me, uh, example number four, 
you know, you see here in the base seven, you know, comes as shown, but then they go on to, to go through the example and the two kill number, which includes the plus one rear and the plus two open top aerial advantage, just to remind people that those things are in play. The half tracks aerial armor factor is zero. You know, and it talks about, you know, what happens to the infantry. Anyway, it's just, it's just showing you what happens in real life in this example four. Yeah. So it's just lots of examples. Example five. So let's talk about the aircraft. This is one of the charts that are in the, uh, or one of the cardboard, I'm not sure what they're called, chapter dividers. Is that the official yeah, one? Yeah, right. And you could zoom in on that too. So it's just, yes, I will. Could. All right. So what I tried to do was I tried to combine Excuse me, I got, actually got into a little bit of a disagreement with a couple of the guys on this. And I think that they, I think we reached a happy compromise. But I wanted to not just illustrate the Onslaught Orsha stuff. Uh, you can see why this is debatable. I also wanted to illustrate how you do ordinary, regular fighter bomber stuff that already exists in the base game. And then, in my opinion, you know, I, I argued or I uh, advocated that, you know, it'll make more sense to show everything with respect to ground support or, you know, and then it'll make, and then, then add on the new onslaught to Orsha stuff. So I, I kind of wanted to start with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Rather than just going straight to the onslaught, because this is an onslaught, but, you know, the other counter argument is, well, this is an onslaught to Orsha module. It's not a, it's not a, you know, standard, you know, chart yeah. for yeah. other other things so you, you could argue both points but i think we reached a happy compromise so like for example on this chart you see all these these russian ground support and i, and I call it standard ground support rules so i'm combining the onslaught orsha stuff with the rules like the 7.4 which is the the majority of the rules on ordinary you know aircraft rules you know for strafing runs and point right. attacks and so on so um you know, here I tried to color code it a little bit. You know, here's like number one is machine guns or bombs, which which could be the uh, anti-tank cluster bomb. And there's some footnotes describing all that stuff. Uh, I'll call that normal, you know, the normal situation. But yeah. sometimes you have rockets, which I made in red. Sometimes you have these cannons, which I made in blue. And, you know, uh, you can see that there's many different ways to handle the, these aircraft and the different options you have available. Again, looking at the table, you see the different aircraft, you see what their machine gun firepower is, you see what their to kill number is when they go against an armored target, you see what their bomb size is in millimeters, but you also see the to kill number of that bomb in brackets. Yeah. If they if they have rockets, you know, it shows you what the uh, millimeters are and what the RAN number is, which we'll, which we'll get into what the RAN is. Um, then if they have a cannon or not, again, trying to color code a little bit, you know, red for rocket, blue for cannon. Some of them have cannons, and you can see a little footnote there of what the kill number is of that cannon, should it go against a, an AFE. Uh, on the German side, I'll scroll over. You know, I, we did include the basic 39 dive bomber Stuka that's in the ordinary game, and the 42 dive bomber Stuka, which is also in the ordinary game, and then the other ones that are now in Onslaught to Orsha, which are a little bit different mm -hmm. and have more features. So, okay. so this was the happy compromise we, we reached between. Uh, so I'm not going to go through every single example, but let me go through maybe one or two. Sure. So, uh, you know, just using the standard rules here. So uh, here's a, now we're in the Russian section here. We're in the Russian section on the left. And it, it's saying, though, this is standard machine gun or bomb attack procedures. There's this footnote A and there's this footnote 1. Now, footnote 1 tells you that the German fighter bombers also follow those same procedures. But, of course, they would ignore the ATCB options because the Germans didn't have those. Okay. All right, so it's telling you on footnote 1 that you would use that for both. So... You can see that if you're doing a strafing run, that's what this is. You see the strafing run that I'm highlighting on the screen. Mm -hmm. It tells you, you know, just step by step, this is what you do. You move to an attack position, four hexes from the target. You make a sighting task check, and now you're subject to light anti-aircraft fire. Notice that you're subject to light anti-aircraft fire before you even do an attack. 
Mm, yeah. All right. And because there's some attacks that are coming up later on where you can attack first before being subject to light and mm. aircraft fire. And the point attacks? So and then over here on the right, point attack, it tells you the steps. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Uh, you notice how, you know, sometimes the range changes. You know, here you got the zero to six. You had seven to 12 in the previous attack because, you know, you use aerial range, which doubles, you know, doubles the, the distance. Right. And so uh, that's pretty important. Let's see what else do I want yeah, to Yeah, and those are both, the, the example covers uh, a, a point attack that, is hitting two targets, one that's at seven and then the the others at zero to six. And you can see the difference in the, right. in the two in the example. It's reminding you that it's a little bit easier to hit on the second attack. Yeah. Because you're a little bit closer. Right. Anyway, so uh, that's an example of the, of the strafing run, of the point attack, of the standard. That's the, this black number one. But if you're going to use rockets, let's talk about rockets. So I think that's on the next page. Yes. So here is the rockets. Uh, okay. Yeah. So if you want to do a strafing run with the rockets, you know, you do it again, I'm not going to go through every single step, but you can see, you know, what you do, step one, step two, step three, and so on. If you're going to do a point attack with the rockets, then you do, you know, that section, step one, step two, step three. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and it, you know, and it tells you if you're using area target type or an infantry target type, or if you have to use one or the other, you know, it, it, it tells you exactly what you need to do and what your options are. You know, here's the Russian cannon. Again, strafing run, point attack. So, again, I'm not going to go through every single little thing because it would take too long. But the rules, I think, come to life a little bit more readily when you, you know, see the flowcharts. Oh, absolutely. There was, a there was a part that I had that maybe uh, didn't get onto this particular version where I describe the things that could be included in light anti-aircraft fire, because that's often a point of confusion of what, what you can include in light anti-aircraft fire. For instance, give me a for instance. Okay, like for example, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you know, like any, like IFE, infantry fire equivalent can be used if, if the gun is in anti-aircraft mode. You know, anti-aircraft guns that are on AFEs can be used. Uh, heavy machine guns can be used, but you can't use the, any leadership modification on them. You know, there's special rules like that. Mm, okay. You can't, you can't use inherent firepower. You can't use light machine guns or medium machine guns. And I thought that we summarized that somewhere, but forgive me, I'm not seeing it right now. That's, and you, that's on the point attacks? Well, that's when you're using light anti-aircraft fire against the aircraft. Okay. Because you see here, and many of the steps, like for example, here I'm showing on the screen, you're subject to light anti-aircraft fire. I'll blow it up again. You know that happens a lot where you're subject yeah. to light anti-aircraft fire. So that that's the thing that the defenders are trying to use against the aircraft. Right. Okay. And if they roll low enough, they can actually you know cause the plane to veer off or even be destroyed if they roll really low. So anyway, uh, you know these are just examples and. Uh, step-by-step step that hopefully make the rules themselves a little bit more easily understandable. And, and also we included the basic rules of, of ground support in these flowcharts. So even if you're, my point is if you're not playing onslaught to Orsha, you're playing just some other scenario that has aircraft in it or ground support in it, you could use these charts. I think that's terrific. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So because the, the data is here to use so I'll leave it at that, but there, that's probably the most exciting and interesting thing about the Onslaught Orsha 2 module is all the cool stuff you can do with aircraft. Yeah, that is really cool. And just like everything with ASL, it's very exciting and fun to plan and think about it and, and use the new cool stuff. But if you roll too high, <laughs> it's, it's not going to work. So roll is, that how, is that how that works? You, can you imagine that? You do all that preparation time, and you follow all the charts, and uh, you roll a, a 10, and it, you miss. It's happened so, many, many times, yep. So uh, roll low, and you'll have, you'll have more fun. Yeah. Well, those so, that, that charts, I mean, these are jam-packed with information, I would, I would say. You know, you're going to need your reading glasses. 
Yeah, uh, to that read is these, one. Again, we did get into a debate about that too, just to share yeah. a little bit. I don't want to. I don't want to get into too much of that, you know, behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, you know, we debated whether we should include bigger fonts and and, and maybe sure. have it expand. Uh, you know, it would take it would take extra cardboard, you know, dividers to fit it all. And you know, this is a decision that was made. It's it's a reasonable decision. Yeah. We did the best we could. It, it's kind of an experiment. Again, this has never really been done before, to my knowledge, of this much. Uh, hands-on step-by-step instruction of how to deploy right. these you know rules i've not seen that done in an asl module before so it's kind of an experiment so if people like it they should say something or if they have suggestions to make it better they should also you know let let, let people know let me know because i might be helping in the future too yeah unless they fire me after doing this podcast we'll see uh, well, the other thing i want to show fired. is yeah, the bombardment uh, so there are special bombardment rules in Onslaught uh, Warsha. You can see these on the right. Let me blow it up a bit. And again, I'm not going to go through every single row here, but you know, I, I've often been confused by bombardment rules when I've used them in the past in other scenarios and other campaign games and things like that. And I just tried to make it really, really simple. Like, you know, what is the morale level and what are the effects and what happens if you fail the morale check? You know, like what happens to the people? What happens to the terrain? You know, which modifiers count, which ones don't. I just try to make it really, really simple in a simple table. So this, you know, shows you all that of what happens to the infantry, what happens to the tanks or the AFEs, what happens to the stone building or the pillbox or what have you. Like here is the ordinary German uh, Stuka point attack. It's, it's, it's the ordinary German Stuka attack, and it's also the, the new, it's two things at once. It's... The normal German Stuka attack, and it's also the the new 43A dive bomber Stuka that's in Ansatz okay. It's both things at the same time. Yeah. And notice notice here, you move to your attack position one hex distant because it's a point attack. You make a sunny task check. And now you do your first attack. You're not subject to light anti-aircraft fire here. Not mm. yet. Like over here on the left, you're subject to the anti-aircraft fire first. Then you make your attack. So the point yeah. is, here on the left-hand side here, on the strafing run, you could end up being shot at by a lot of anti-aircraft fire. And if one of those die rolls is low, it could basically foil your whole aircraft attack. Yeah. Because if they get a low roll and they have a lot of anti-aircraft fire, you know, one of them might affect the aircraft and even destroy it before you even get a chance to attack. Here, the Stuka gets to attack first. Look at that. Furthermore... And here's a rule that's been very confusing for a lot of people for a long time. It says that the infantry and the target hex are pinned. You know, even if the result is nothing, they still are pinned. But if they are concealed, if the target is concealed, they don't lose concealment, if only due to this particular pin. Because for a long time, I know a lot of people played it. Well, you're pinned, and so you lose concealment. Which uh -huh. normally would be the case. If you're pinned, you lose concealment in a normal situation. But... In this case, if the only reason why you're losing concealment is because you're you're forced to be pinned because of the Stuka attack, you don't. So I guess in that case, you would not be pinned, or, or I guess you're pinned and concealed. Pinned and concealed, time, right. Yeah. Which would be a strange. Then you're subject to light anchor. So that's the advantage of doing the point attack with the Stuka. It's one of the advantages. You get to attack first before yeah. you get attacked. And the Russians don't have any planes like that. Only the Germans have this particular couple of stukas that can do that okay so that's something i wanted to, to demonstrate very cool. very cool all right so moving back so I, I bounce around a little bit so let me i did bombardment now this part i had nothing to do with so i don't take any credit for this this I think this is very similar to what was in onslaught torture one it's just sort of a summary of some of the special rules and the special terrain features but then moving on to stuff i did help with there are special rules in the rules about terrain types. There's a special orchard shell hole rule. There's the, you know, we talked about the railroad a few minutes ago. And again, just to make things simple, and it's not complicated, but again, it's hard to remember all this stuff when you're actually playing the game. Oh, I just yeah. made a little, little chart, little table of how many movement factors it takes to go into these special terrain features. It's hard to know sometimes if you're an infantry, if you're a tracked vehicle, if you're a non-tracked vehicle. <coughs> it's, just, it's just hard to know. 
and you know if you got a rule for bog or not and if so what are the bog modifiers this is just a handy dandy how many movement points or movement factors does it take nothing complicated here but it just summarizes it all in one spot if you're going to play on the on the paper map with the special terrain it's very easy to just look at this chart and you can tell what you're doing you know rather than you know you're moving your tank and you want to cross the railroad track yeah and then you're flipping back into chapter b yeah yeah but, well, you know uh, anyway there's yeah, also that, uh, machine yeah. gun cupolas uh in onslaught orsha those are also in the regular rules but the onslaught orsha ones are a tiny bit different and so you know again nothing real fancy here but i just sort of summarized it like you know you treat it like this and this is the hexes it can set up in it yeah and it can create fire lanes which is different than i think machine gun cupolas in the normal rules and the all of these things are not applicable to the machine gun cupola anyway it's just basically explaining everything that could possibly happen in a quick little paragraph the slope rules now i myself have been frustrated by the slope rules and there's nothing different about the onslaught orsha slope rules they're very similar to the slope rules that already exist in chapter p but this was my way of just you know it's kind of summarizing that thank like, goodness you know, and you know it's, it's just I, I always struggled with, well, is it a downslope? Is it an upslope? You yep. know, what do those hash marks mean? You yep. know? Yep. And, and I tried to explain it in words. I tried to, you know, make it easy to understand, to refresh people's memory if they have any slopes. Because there are a lot of slopes in Onslaught Orsha that are very important. And you got to yeah. know the slope reasonably well to enjoy using the historical map. And so line of slide across slopes, fire lanes across slopes, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into it now, but I tried to grab the most important points to uh, make the slope rules a little bit more manageable and understandable. And then finally, I guess the last thing that I spent a lot of time on were these new mine roller tanks. So it starts yeah. here in the lower left-hand corner. Let me blow this up. And so, again, I just tried to grab, for, you know, like how do you even move these things? Why are they different? And, you know, changing its vehicle covered arc is a little bit different. Right. And they cannot go into buildings or rubble or woods, you know, the way normal tanks can. And anyway, I just summarized it all. I'm not going to. Yeah, they don't get vehicle bypass. They don't get road rate. Yeah, it's right. all here. Right. right. No OVR, no ES, no excessive speed breakdown. Yeah. Right. So I'm just trying to grab all the things that could come up. Oh, gee, I want an ES, yeah. ESB. Well, you can't. Oh, I want to use one half movement point weight. You can't. I want to overrun yeah. the infantry. You can't. Yeah. Next, you know, here's how you move. You know, very, very simple step by step. How do you move? Because the purpose of it is to find mines. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, well, you declare they're going to move it. And, you're going to, and you declare how many movement points you're going to expend as you enter that hex. It might only cost one movement point to enter an open ground hex. But you have to declare, I'm spending one movement point, or I'm spending half my movement points. You have to say it. Okay. And then the, and then the yeah. opponent will then say, okay, yeah, you just found some mines. And then if mines are found, you go to step three. If not, you go back to step one. And you announce how many movement points you're going to expend to go to the next step. That's great. But if there are mines, you know, it tells you what to do. The PT tank is not attacked by the mines, but it must buttoned up and it must remain in motion. And it spends the rest of its movement points right there. Yes, and you place a partial trail rig. Yeah. Then, then there's a clearance gyro modifier that's to be determined, and that'll be affected by how many movement points that you declared. You know, the more movement points you declared, the better the modifier will be. And it tells you, you know, what those are, what those mods are based on, you know, how many movement points you expended. You know, I guess it's less than half, greater than equal to half or all are the three possibilities. And then it tells you that you're not gonna clear the mines now, you have to wait to the close combat phase. Right. So Till the, end, that, of, end of the end of the close combat phase, right? That's right. So it's, it's done possible. after after all close combat is done. Exactly, so the tank, the AV could be destroyed or bogged or immobilized or right. stunned or whatever, you know, in the meantime, during defense and fire phase before you even get to the close combat phase. Yeah, okay. But assuming none of those things happen and you're still there, then you roll and you apply these modifiers. And, you know, if you roll low enough, you can place a trail break, as it says, or it might damage the mine roller or the tank itself might get destroyed based on the results here. It's basically just summarizing the rules in a step-by-step -step 
you know, format. Yeah. But then they had special rules about how you could move infantry and the PT tank combined. So it's armored assault, yes, and the armored assault rules, you know, are pretty well understood, but it's a little different when you're armored assaulting with a PT tank. And it tells you, you know, how who's attacked and how you're attacked, you know, is the infantry attacked? And yes, they are with half firepower. And, you know, it, it tells you what to do with, you know, riders, with infantry on foot, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. There's so also- you're, and you're meaning if the, if the PT, if the, uh, if the PT tank detonates a mine, what happens to the guys that are assault moving with it? Is that, that's what you're talking about? Right, right. Yeah. So it's yeah, infantry okay. using armored assault with the PT yeah. tank that enters an AP minefield hex or attack with half armor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with no TEM. I think the regular rules say that you'd be attacked with full firepower if you were with like a normal AFE. Right. But with this type of attack, at least it cuts it in half. Okay. And it also tells you no TEM, so zero TEM. Then you make a minefield clearance roll in the close combat phase, just like you normally would, you know, with the other rules. Uh, the infantry, you know, yeah, so the, the infantry is not helping you with that. And riders on the tank are affected by mines, you know, per that rule, per that. So, like, if the tank gets blown up, I think that riders are attacked laterally or something like that. But it's at least telling you where to go if that happens. Wire is an important thing, too. There's tons of wire in Ronsat's Orsha. And these wire, these, these PT tanks are a little bit better at removing wire. I think you know, Jeff, that normally when you roll for bog with a regular fully tracked AFE, if you get a one on the color die roll, the wire is removed. Well, with PT tanks, it's a little bit better if the, if the color die roll is one or two the wire is removed. Okay. okay. However, there's a plus modif- plus five modifier on the bog die roll because you got plus two for the wire, plus one special PT bog rule that's in there. And there, these AFEs are all high ground pressure, which is another plus two, so that's plus five altogether. Notice, uh. notice again, we're showing the, 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 the reader where the plus five comes from. So it's possible when you think about it, and I tried to make this this point here in this in the way this is described, it's possible that if you get a six on the white die roll, and you get a let's say a two on the color die roll, that's eight, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you add five, that's thirteen. It's possible that you would get a bond, but you would also clear the wire, right? Oh, okay. In that situation, I guess you could also have a five on the white die roll and a two on the color die roll and add five, and that's 12. Okay, so what this is telling you is you don't bog, even though you might have otherwise, if the color die roll is less than or equal to two, even if. So this is telling you what happened, because you know when those situations happen that nobody talks about? Yeah. Then you don't know what to do? Right. Here's what you do. So we made it clear that if that happened, because you know that's what's going to happen. If we didn't put of this course. there, if we didn't put that in there, then that's what would happen to everybody. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go through all this now, but you know, here's when you're firing versus a PT tank because the mine roller that's in front, you know, kind of protects the AFV a little bit, and you can read, you know, how that works. If you're firing from the PT tank, the mine roller kind of gets in your way, and it, mm. it has certain effects to stop you. Or to prevent you from doing certain things, it's not that bad, but you know there are some little little nuances there. So anyway, I tried to summarize all the PT rollers, uh, PT tank mine roller rules into little little sections here. Nice. So anyway, that's what we did. Uh, I want to you know commend the BFE guys for giving me a chance to contribute and, and, and the way I uh, the way I did, and I hope that the people who buy the module are are happy with it and like it. And, you know, enjoy using the new the new tools, the new toys, the mine rollers, the, the new aircraft, the new rockets, the cannons, the cluster bombs. I hope that the, the flow charts help, uh, you know, in the use of those things. And yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm still uh, waiting for a little bit of feedback. I got to think that it's going to make a huge difference for, for playability of the thing, especially if you have a brain like mine, where you're reading through the rules and trying to absorb it all and it just doesn't sink in. But here it's all just laid out. You just follow one, two, three, four, five, just right down the row for your situation. That makes it so much easier. Yeah, well done, Rich. That's nice. 
Are you, where do I find your name? Is it in here somewhere? Well, yeah, I think on the back they show player aids. They show my name next to the player aids. Okay, you're immortal. Well, I don't know about that, but I am proud of uh, the work that I did do to help. I look forward to working with these guys again. I hope that I can work with them again on another module that they might be working on. And you've got more in the works, too, right? I promise yeah, you. I do. I always have one or two I'm sort of working on in the background or thinking about, or I'll play a game and I'm like, huh, that never happened before. Yeah. And I'll uh, think about perhaps putting a chart together, but that's certainly slowed down because, you know, now I have experience, you know, not everything. How can you experience everything? But I've experienced, you know, a great deal of what the game has to offer by this point. I've made, you know, quite a number of charts that capture quite a few of the things that I think happen reasonably often, but I, you know, never say never. There's always more. Well, and Dave, Dave and I agreed. Longer. Dave and I agreed going forward before each show, we would make sure we are not wearing pants and that we have our spilky charts out. Well, so. I'm not sure which of those two things is more important, but <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you uh, experiment and see. All right. Well, we're at uh, about time's up for this show. Actually, we've gone a little bit long. Uh, it was such good material. Do we have any more to cover for uh, Onslaught to Orsha for a future show? Or we pretty much covered it, I guess, right? Well, I just want to encourage people to go to the BFP website and order it because I know they're one of your sponsors, but I also obviously am biased because, you know, I want to support those guys. And again, yeah. they were good, good enough to let me help them. So well, I'm looking forward to playing one of these scenarios. So I have to get, uh, I have to help you get your vassal going, or maybe I can get Dave to to play one of these with me. Anyway. I'd, I'd, I'd wonder, uh, you know, I don't want to push you on the spot. I'm not a vassal guy myself, but I, I know I need to get there eventually. But I know you have had a couple programs talking about vassal. Do you know if the Onslaught to Orsha material is oh, that's a good uh, question. in vassal? Do you know? I, I don't. Uh, I would have to look through the downloads, and I don't want to do that right at the moment. Yeah, so. one, of the, one of the listeners probably will comment on that if they know. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was, uh, it was fun. Thanks, Rich. It's always a pleasure to see you. I wish uh, we could get together and play face-to-face, -face, but uh, barring that, maybe we could work out something else in the near future. And I'm glad you're safe and everybody's healthy there. Yes, my family is doing well, and I trust yours is too. We are, and we're, we're staying I sh where's my mask? I wear it to bed. <laughs> we're, we're being very safe over here. Wow, you sure are. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being with us and hope to see you again soon. But remember to roll low. And rally well. But not when you're playing, playing us. Us. You or me. That's right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.